Welcome along to the first in uh, what we hope will be a long-running series of uh, podcasts. Sporting Lives is our theme, and we'll be looking at uh, the lives of numerous sportsmen and women um, over the coming weeks. Delighted to say that our guinea pig is a former Yorkshire skipper, former England all-rounder, and of course now head coach of Essex County Cricket Club, Anthony McGrath. Welcome along, Anthony, and perhaps first of all you can clear up McGrath or McGrath. No, thank you for having me. Um, it's definitely McGrath. Uh, my mum, during my playing days, used to get very annoyed with uh, McGrath. McGrath, she uh, reliably informed me, is Irish. So, um, yeah, she um, she was always a little bit uh, fussy about the pronunciation of it. And those early days, I know you went to Yorkshire Martyrs School over in, in Bradford, where you were born. Um, and a very, very much a sporting family. Your brother Damien, involved in both rugby union and rugby league. Dermot, of course, really good uh, local cricketer, particularly in, in Bradford. Um, it must have been a tough old school at home, uh, been, uh, having a couple of brothers like that. Yeah, um, I didn't have much choice really but to get involved in sports. So I'd say most of my childhood were going around various rugby or cricket grounds watching them, um, especially with Dermot in the Bradford League. I uh, grew up watching him at Bankfoot and then um, he moved on to a couple of other clubs. But very fond memories, the summers, watching Bradford League cricket and... I guess that's how I got the cricket in bug. Uh, was it was it tough and, and competitive there? Did you learn lots of things from playing, you know, with Dermot, for example, that you were able to apply in those formative years? Because uh, he was a tough old a tough old character, wasn't he? Yeah, it was. We always used to play in the garden and stuff, so he were, he were um, you know pretty tough on me. But um, I think I, I I was lucky in a way where I was playing, you know, as 12, 13 year old in the under 17. So I always seemed to be playing with older guys. And the competition, as you know, in Bradford League was very strong. Um, so I got a tough grounding. Um, you know, there wasn't much given in, in the Bradford League games. Um, so I think, you know, from a mentally uh, mental point of view, it was probably some good lessons at an early age, which uh, made you toughen up. The first time I can remember seeing you was in a game against you when I think you batted all the way through a 50-over match for something like 95 not out. You'd only have been about 13 or 14 I had a bowl at you that day and clearly didn't manage to um, to, to tickle the varnish um, at the other end. You probably smashed me for a few boundaries, I'm, I'm sure. But, you know, I remember this. there was a lot of talk about you at the time um, around the league. There was this buzz, you know, this young lad who's got so much ability, he's got great temperament. Did you find it easy going through those those junior years? Was it plain sailing on the way to professional cricket or were there challenges that you had to overcome? Uh, no, definitely challenges. I mean, um, again, I think starting at Bankfoot, I was given the opportunity at a young age, so I think that helped being, you know, playing against men, as I say, and also then playing in your uh, own age group. Um, I found that easier, obviously, than, than against the men. So I think that exposure and the chance to to probably play a lot of cricket at that young age certainly certainly benefited me. But like in, in, in every... Um, you know, age group you go. You once you got into the north of England, uh, England there was a lot of good young players about. So it was always that um, challenge of trying to keep scoring runs and, and keep your name, you know, as you say, um, in and around selection of other teams. And we often in life remember things that are more challenging than the stuff that is easy. I was doing a, a dinner recently with Yorkshire skipper Steve Patterson, and he said that. When he was coming through the ranks, he had, as he described it, Andrew Gale on toast playing in, in representative cricket. Is there, Was there any bowler in back in those days who you kind of thought, I'm not too sure I'm looking forward to this this afternoon? Um, probably Neil Colleen, uh, who at a young age was was very quick, or quick certainly to us at that age. I mean, he, he turned out to be a fine bowler for Durham, but without being disrespectful, he was probably known as a medium pacer uh, in professional cricket. But... I remember coming up against him at 12 or 13 and not really seeing that kind of pace, especially from a young bowler. So he was certainly tricky um, for a few years. And then when when it finally comes round to somebody, metaphorically at least, knocking on the door and saying there's a possible opportunity here at Yorkshire, I mean, how did that come? Were you expecting it? Were there other counties interested at the time? No, not really. I mean, Yorkshire Academy had only just started, really. It was a few years, so there was definitely a probably an easier pathway for younger players once the academy came out, came along so playing in um, you know Yorkshire under 16s 17s um, 
you know the academy were down at Bradford Park Avenue and I got invited to go down there so um, you know there were a lot of good uh, academy guys people in the Bradford League who were there um, so it was about really performing well for the academy and if you did that you knew you had a chance of getting a Yorkshire contract so that were kind of my route into Yorkshire. Um, and in those early years again how difficult did you find it to to establish yourself because so much about sport is about getting respect getting respect of people who are in there you'd have been probably already coming up against established players in net situations that type of thing did you feel at ease did you feel comfortable did people make you feel comfortable you hear some all, you know, all sorts of stories about dressing rooms and you know, Fred Bloggs, the old stager, will come in and say, what are you doing sitting there, pal? You should be sitting over there or you should be in that changing room down the corridor because you're not a first-teamer yet. Any, anything like that in those days? No, I mean, there was... I think growing up, there was a, a lot of talk and, you know, I know your brother well from from playing in, in the academy and he was at Yorkshire. Um, people like Bradley Parker, Paul Grayson, uh, who was in the Bradford League. So I think it, it got easier once the academy came in. I think there was... A bit more of togetherness. You heard stories, as you mentioned there, two dressing rooms. You know, the young and the old, and people not bonding. But I always found Yorkshire um, an enjoyable experience. Actually, people really welcomed me in. Maybe because I was doing well at that time, I'm not too sure. But I think the first, you know, couple of years, um, I got my chance in the first team. I think at 19. So the first couple of years uh, went really well. I think it was after that I just struggled for consistency, and that's when you know probably the first period I really felt like I was struggling a little bit but certainly you know the first couple of years as I say transition of going from the academy second team and the first team was a was a real enjoyable experience. Um, I don't want to remind you of negatives obviously but that first match at Park Avenue home ground and all that Glamorgan as you say 19 Martin Moxon skippering first innings can you remember what you scored? I do I duck yeah I remember it very well um with it being in Bradford, a lot of family and friends were there, even you know, people from school and school teachers. And uh, yeah, just I remember being really excited and then to get a duck on your first innings, uh, you know, was, was really disappointing. I just um, just felt probably more for family and stuff who come down. I, I wasn't too down myself, but um, you know, certainly not, the, not a great start. Um, I managed to get a few more in the second innings, which were a relief, but um, I just remember it being a you know, great occasion against Clamorgan and just to, to make a Yorkshire debut were, was something very special. And you look at that that team now, uh, Michael Vaughan opened the batting with you, David Bias um, was around and I think captain in that particular game, Michael Bevan, uh, Richard Stemp, Craig White, Richard Blakey, Paul Grayson back in the fold at Yorkshire now, Darren Goff, Peter Hartley, Mark Robinson, not a bad old side to come into as well. No, I mean we... We had a really good side, and I think that were the makings, uh, you know, going up towards the, the championship year in 2001. But certainly, the mid to late 90s, we had a very strong team, and and probably should have won more. Really, we got knocked out in quite a few semi-finals. Uh, we only won one championship and a C and G, but that was, um, you know, a very strong team, and a few other younger players were starting to come through then as well. And you've got to, um, as I say, feel like you get more confident, I guess, when you start to establish yourself. And that, from a batsman's perspective, the first little hurdle is ticking off that first half century. Took you only until your third Champo game to get that. Do you remember much about that? Somerset, I think it was. Um, down at Taunton. Yeah, as you say, you're wanting to make an impact and uh, and score. I think I got 80-odd that day, so I was disappointed not to get the 100. I remember... Uh, Mustak Ahmed, I think, played for Somerset, so that was a, a different challenge. Um, but um, I think when you get your first kind of score, there's a bit of relief, a bit of pressure off it. It'd be nice to get that first hundred, but as you say, to pass the fifty, raise your bat, and you want to kind of feel as though, you know, as a young player, you, you're performing, you're putting some performances in for the team. So that did give me a lot of confidence. And you've already mentioned that things started pretty well, and then there was a bit of a dip, but after that, really good start. Not much better, really, apart from full international honours than to get an A call-up, an England A call-up after just five championship games and NASA, um, your skipper. What did that feel yeah, like? Yeah, it was a bit of a surprise. As you say, I'd only played five first-class games. I think it was on the back of uh, doing well for the under-19s. I think that summer um, the South Africa series were on telly and I managed to get 200s, I think, in, in the series, in the one-day series. So that kind of catapulted me a little bit. And... Back in uh, then in the England Day team, they always used to maybe take a one or two youngsters, and um, 
fortunately for me, um, that was a tour and you know it was one of the best experiences I've had still um, to go to Pakistan. Uh, was that the first time you'd played in those sort of conditions? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was a huge eye-opener. You know, we were really welcomed out there. The pitches were really tough. We felt, you know, faced a lot of spin bowling, which I hadn't before. And the team we went over, you mentioned Nasser as captain, but they had some real experience going on that tour. Um, Nick Knight? Yeah. Ronnie Arani, I think, was there. Dean Headley. Ian Salisbury? Yeah. and Jason Gallian as well? Jason Gall. yeah. yeah. I, I actually didn't know any of them, apart from... Chalky White and Richard Stemp and I'd only played five games with them so I remember being really nervous you know eight weeks away I'd only just left school and thinking you know I'd seen a lot of these guys on TV but they were really good they, you know they welcomed me and looked after me as, as one of the younger players and um, it was a really really good tour. And again trying to establish yourself getting some runs on the board took you just to the second match against the Pakistan cricket board to record your first first class ton what a feeling. It was, yeah, and Shoei Bakhtar played that day and we didn't know anything about him uh, at that time but I remember um, watching, I think we were in Lahore and uh, this guy was bowling speed of light. I think he'd hit Ronnie Arani and Jason Gallion a few times and um, yeah, I managed to uh, kind of keep him out and then towards the end of the innings, I think we were eight or nine down, we got some quick runs and, and to get that, as you say, kind of monkey off your back, that first hundred, um, yeah, it was a great feeling. Uh, and again, that you know gives you a lot of confidence, obviously. So all of a sudden, you've got a hundred playing for England A after only five championship games in your first season. Uh, you, you're pushing twenty at this point, the ripe old age of twenty. People are then starting to say this young kid's got a future for England. And you come back home to Yorkshire, and in that first full season, you play all seventeen championship games in 1996. Um, so you are already beginning quickly to feel established. Yeah, I think you know when you go on an England day tour, there's that expectation. So that year, the next year, I really wanted to try and make a mark. And as you say, I played pretty much all the games in both red ball and white ball. So that was a really big year for me, really. Um, I think we lost, disappointing in that season, we lost to Lancashire twice in two semi-finals. And we were going well in the league as well. Um, so... I think that season in particular were really disappointing that we didn't win anything. You've mentioned the team we had. So um, although it was great to be part of, I remember just especially that second semi-final against Lanks being so disappointed we'd lost. Uh, and I think the way out of Old Trafford, they were bricking us cars and stuff like that. So it was a, it was a, a very disappointing uh, a game, that one in particular. Was it a good dressing room to be around? I mean, I know you had your own issues with Yorkshire, which we'll come back to a little bit later on, but at that point, in those, those early years, was it a, a good place to be? It was, yeah. I mean, as a, the two young players, it was myself and Michael Vaughan. He'd been in the team a year or two earlier. But the characters in there, Goffey, you know, uh, Richard Blakey, Peter Hartley, there were Martin Moxon still playing then, David Bias, Craig White, you know, really good lads and... You know, we had a very, very good team, which helped. So um, the kind of pressure was off, really, because the the, the older guys did look after you. Um, so you have very, you know, a lot of happy memories from them early days. Uh, Martin Moxon, I mean, we said you opened the batting in your first innings. Uh, Michael Vaughan was around, and we know what he went on to achieve in the game since then. But he was still a young player. But you were you were looking up at players like Martin Moxon, who'd been around for 15 years in in the game at that point. David Bias was approaching the, the sort of veteran stakes as well. Were there players who you could learn from? Would they share things with you? Would they be good mentors? Or yeah, you let no, you get on with it? No, very much so. I mean, Martin was club captain, always very helpful to the younger guys. I remember Doug Padgett, um, one of the pre-seasons, taking me to watch Martin Moxon and just saying, just copy what this guy does. Um, but Martin was very supportive. Um, Dave then when he became captain there was no real coaches in them days so the captain did everything uh, but Dave was a really good player too good record unfortunate not to play for England so um, I think that about them too what you grasped pretty early on were they were really good professionals you know both tough in their own way David you know a bit of a disciplinarian but they were really good professionals really hard trainers good work ethic you know, they kept really high standards. Um, so they really set the tone for, for Yorkshire in them days. So say you're having a bad trot in those days. Let's say you've gone you know, half a dozen games without getting a half century even. Um, things are not working well for you. Are they the sort of fellows who can 
reinforce confidence in you? Can they tell you, you know, you, you do this well, you do that well, try and bolster you up? Or? Yeah, I mean, they led from it uh, by example with the performances. I think in them days it was very different to now where, you know, probably the coaches, that's the coach's job really, they were also players, so they were looking after their own game. They couldn't spend too much time, you know, because they, they had to fulfil everything else. So, um, whereas now, you know, there's probably, God, seven, eight, nine different coaches that you can go and work with. In them days, you had to kind of fend for yourself so that people would pass on tips, but you really had to try and work things out yourself. Uh, there was only really Doug Padgett around who, who run the second team, so you didn't see him much in the summer. Um, so that was quite tough. You know, you didn't really know which way to go, and because you didn't have a lot of experience, sometimes it took you longer to to come out of them bad trots. So could it be counterproductive in a way then? Because if you're in a professional game where results matter, your performances matter, they're out there for everybody to see on a public display in newspapers, television, radio, and on the field itself. Do people, are people were people reluctant ever to to maybe help where? They might have been able to because they're looking after their own corner. Um, no, I don't think so. I just think that was the environment then. I think people, you know, I guess you know, if you were struggling, you didn't really want to show it to people. You know, it was that kind of tough Yorkshire spirit. Just get on with it, get back in the nets. So that was kind of the culture then. I don't think anyone were doing it particularly on purpose, but as you say, it's a cutthroat sport. People are wanting to get in the teams and. Because Yorkshire had a good team and a good squad, if you weren't performing, you know, four or five games, you you were out of the team. So there's always that kind of dog eat dog. What's going on? It's just professional sport. You mentioned David Bias, and he was part of one of your uh, early big moments in the tide against Hampshire at Harrogate, July '96. You made 137, and you shared in a massive stand with uh, the man they call Bingo, who made 138. Just nicked the personal um, the personal victory there, but. You won the game by 10 wickets, and to make that sort of contribution again must have been a sky-high feeling. Yeah, it was. Um, I think that was probably our best innings to date that day. We, As you say, with David, put a big partnership on. Gloriously sunny day at Harrogate. All the marquees on the far side of the bank are really good crowding. Um, so, yeah, it was. And, and that was the most important thing, that we went on to win the game. I think Pete Hartley got wickets in the second innings, but... Um, to put in such a good performance it was kind of around that time you're thinking now you're getting more established you're putting match winning performances so um, yeah that was a, a really good day I think Dickie Bird was umpiring that day and I think there was a very close LB shout which he always reminds me of which he turned down which uh, uh, early on in meaning so uh, he always uh, ribs me about that Did he end up in tears when you were out then? <laughs> yeah it, is, uh, it was always good Dickie good value with the umpiring so I think we've we've established that at this point you've established yourself and that is underlined by another A-tour, this time to Australia. How different an experience was that to going to Pakistan the year before? Um, yeah, I mean, again, another really good tour. Learned a lot. I didn't play very well on the tour. Uh, I really struggled, actually. Um, probably too much tinkering. The Aussies at that time, the, the strength in their cricket was just frightening. Um, we played all the state teams. We actually were very successful on the tour. We, um, I remember playing South Australia and Gillespie were playing, Lehman, Blewett, Siddons, I think. So we, we came up with some really good opposition. Um, and and as, a, as a team, we had a very successful tour, but I just really struggled. Uh, I think I got 100 in Canberra in one of the games, but apart from that, I, I literally never got out of double figures. And is this then part of that thing you were saying about the dip in form for a little while after you'd had those first couple of good seasons? Yeah, I think... <laughs> knocked my confidence a bit that tour um, and when I came back I, I really struggled I, w I was probably at the stage where it was the first time I'd gone through a real rough trot you know coming through juniors and everything had gone you know swimmingly well really and at that time I didn't really know where to go um, I kind of changed the technique a little bit and were tinkering a bit too much and um, probably listening to too many people and then because you've had that expectation when you go through a uh, you know, a rut in form. Um, the criticism, probably first time it had come from media and people like that, it, it, it really took its toll a little bit and that took me a bit of time to come back from. Speaking to one or two players in, in, the, in the past season, um, 
when they have been faced with that challenge and they've talked about that noise that you know there's so many different people saying so many different things got to be a, a well a strange place to be in because you're not used to failure as it were um and also then you you don't quite know because if if the coach says one thing to you and you don't follow that because you believe in doing your own thing and you fail you're probably going to expect to be dropped but if the skipper's saying something different to you and different to him what do you do I mean do you just have to trust in your own game yeah I mean in hindsight you do but I think at the time you're wanting to as you said please the coach the captain you know you might read stuff in the media and you think oh yeah I should be doing that and you kind of you know fight yourself coming backwards really so it, it's a tough one and and that's where mentally you've got to be really strong and I think that's where players who know the game inside out just say no I'm going to trust what I do I'm going to stick with it I probably was trying to find out you know too many things and change too many things in a short space of time so it wasn't until uh, you know a couple of years I really you know got got through that um, I actually seeked out the help of a sports psychologist and that time that wasn't really the common thing and I, I remember doing it away from the club um, because it was looked upon as weak really um, so that w- that was a big moment for me that's a really in- that's really interesting isn't it? what 20 years ago mm. and that was looked upon as being weak and yet now you know the whole thing has flipped about and it's a strength to be able to say that you need that sort of help but who was it who you saw if you're a little bit to tell um, us a guy called Malcolm Cook who was actually from football background um, and yeah, as I say, it wasn't really commonplace at that time. And I remember I actually brought him into Headingley uh, for one training session, and a few lads were laughing, like, what is this? And then I decided, you know, I really liked it because we were going through routines and more the mental stuff. And I actually started seeing him away from Headingley. Um, but re- he really helped. You talk about the noise of people use different phrases, but he really helped with that about really just sticking to your own routine what works for you, you know, blocking out that noise. Um, and it, I mean, it's commonplace now, every sports team have not just one, two, three. So it really helped offloading kind of how I was feeling. Uh, and as I say, just really that, you know, someone to talk to who wasn't involved in selection or picking teams or or what you thought, you know. So, so that really helped offloading my feelings and then really getting a good, solid... Uh, routine to my to my cricket and was that um, something that you did just for a predefined period if you like let's say a couple of months or a season or was it something that you dipped in and out of for a, over a period of years uh, to be honest I, I've, I used it all through my career with different people I, I only used Malcolm f- for a while uh, when I got into England people like Steve Bull were there um, but actually when my career got to a point where I was more consistent the early 2000s to when I finished was Kevin Sharp. He was really into that side of it. Um, and he was probably my first real batting coach. So we used to spend hours even, I think first met Kevin when he didn't work for Yorkshire. So I used to go down to Bradford University away from Headingley and and um, he was the one who, who really encouraged me to keep a, like a cricketing diary. And I did that for the rest of my career because he had his own sort of struggles didn't he as well in yeah. that respect as a player so he'd understand yeah and again it was just a you know different opinion but as you rightly say he went through similar stuff in his Yorkshire career and he really gave me some good stuff but um, the diary um, was was something I, I I still use to this day but through the playing playing days it really really helped so when you use a diary now um, as a coach rather than as a player is is there any difference to the sort of things that you you're using it for uh, between your yeah, playing it, career and your coaching career it, it kind of started really because I wanted to get more consistent in my thinking so I'd write at practice how I was and how I was playing it wasn't just about the scores you got and then you kind of look back and and um you know, really look what you're putting in and are you being consistent with what you're writing? Are you two up when you get scores? Are you two down when, when things are not going well? And it took a bit of time, took a bit of playing with, but I think now is more observation on, on how players are doing. You know, you've got 20 odd people in your squad. So the, they are different, but same principles apply. You you want to be consistent in your thinking. Um, you know, you've got to be flexible, but you've still got to have a, a vision of where you want to go. 
and again not being too up and do it too down really so would you say that uh, now as a as a head coach a successful very successful head coach in 2019 um those things that you you learn as a player in terms of the mental side of the game are you have you applied that to your coaching in that you are lenient or understanding with players who maybe at Essex have their own issues in that respect? Yeah, 100%. Yeah, without doubt. I mean, I think empathy in sport is, is huge. Um, you know, the guys who are doing well don't need too much looking after it. It's the guys who are, who are maybe struggling. And sometimes it's not cricket, it's stuff away. And I think having that experience as a player, you can spot certain things. And if players are slightly down or acting a little bit differently that's when the alarm bells ring really so that's the part of man management I think. Is it is it always the players that are not doing well though because occasionally you'll hear stories about players who've done fantastically well Mark Ramprakash somebody you would have played against mm. and probably with at certain points in your playing career you know we, we hear about his I mean the number of runs he scored in county cricket and then if you could just overlay that into his test game, he'd probably have scored a lot more runs, wouldn't he? But he admitted to getting racked with nerves and that sort of thing. Yeah, I, th I think it, coaching, in my opinion, is about getting to know the individual. So, you know, how they work, how they think, and try and get that relationship. And as you said, the, everyone at some point, I don't care who they are, the greatest players will have challenges. Um, you know, and, and more mentally, you know, some people get to county level and don't go any further some will go to England level and when you get dropped from from wherever team you are there's going to be some kind of you know issues or problems and and even guys who you know play 100 tests at, at some point there's going to be you know real problems so I think it's just understanding how the players are making sure that the door's always open and even if you've not got a great relationship I always encourage players to have someone away from the club who they can speak to um, because it's not easy in that kind of environment. You want to come over as tough, you want to come over as unflappable, but we all know that you know, you've know you got to act sometimes. Yeah. Uh, we, we're not been to Yorkshire career, by the way. We will come back to that in a moment or two. But while we're on this, and I'm talking Essex at the moment, to have somebody in the side, you know I'm going to say, Sir A.N. Cook, you know, what a player, uh, the greatest in terms of number of runs scored for England in Test cricket, how good's it been to have him around in the 2019 season? Because you know, again, he scored all those runs, but he had several lengthy trots in Test cricket, in particular. Mm. What's he like around the dressing room when when players are going through it? What's he been like so far? It's, I mean, it's just superb to have about. I mean, for any coach, any team to have someone like that, his experience and and it's not just the number of runs you alluded to it there. It's just his experience. You know, he's so calm. You can tell a difference when he's in the room. You know, other players get confident around him. Um, but he's someone who sits back. Really, he's not someone who's a, a you know, uh, kind of always instructing or giving. He'll just sit back and really take it all in. And he'll might say the odd couple of things. But I think this period of time he's played Test cricket, he just wants to enjoy his cricket really. But um, to have that sounding block in the dressing room, not just for the players, but for me as a coach, is invaluable, really. Fantastic. More about Essex to come. But let's go back to Yorkshire because we've got, we've got you established in the side and then we get to, we've built nicely, I guess, two divisions comes in in 2000 and then bang, 2001, the first time since, um, I was going to say the year of my birth, but I won't reveal my age, but the first time since 1968 that uh, Yorkshire win a title 33 years. I remember it well. I was there at uh, Scarborough North Marine Road against Glamorgan. What a season that was. And, and to be part of that, I, could, I remember seeing videos of you as a youngster thinking, God, I know him. He's playing for Yorkshire and he's just won a title. And you were all excited on the, on the video. And um, the, the sort of characters who were around, Steve Kirby, uh, seemed to come into the side, I think, what, halfway through yeah, that season probably. Through. And he yeah. was running down... 22-yard follow-through, snarling at batsman, David Bias in charge of it. Tell us what it was like that season. Amazing, really. Um, personally, I got injured early on. I had a hernia, so I didn't come back till halfway through the season. But I just remember getting back fit. And you say Steve Kirby came in and we just went on an incredible run, really. The confidence was up. We had Darren Lehman, who arguably one of Yorkshire's best players, certainly in in, uh, in modern times, who were just scoring run after run. But I think it was the fast bowling um, you know, we had a battery of fast bowlers. Ryan Sidebottom, uh, Goffey was away with England. Chris Silverwood, Gavin Hamilton, 
Steve Kirby, as you say, uh, coming in. Uh, Craig White was around. I think we had seven or eight fast bowlers, which we could just rotate. Um, Richard Dawson had a brilliant year with a spin. So if we got any kind of score on the board, we were just really difficult to beat. And um, I think we won the title, as you say, at Scarborough, but with three games left. Um, us and Surrey were going for the, um, you know, around that time, always fighting for uh, for the title. So um, to to get the job done with three games to go and to win it at Scarborough, which is you know most Yorkshire players' favourite ground. I just remember the the scenes on the day, uh, you know, grown men crying, and um, I think we just won just before the rain came down. It would just all seem to be scripted, and just remember feeling the relief because every year we talked about we've not won it since '68, and we'd been in you know good positions over the last few years but to actually get it won was an incredible feeling uh, and what were, what was it like do you remember the dressing room scenes afterwards and all because those are the moments or is it all a bit of a blur uh yeah a bit of a blur and we, we'd not won anything so no one knew what to do and we'd lost in semi-finals as i say so i just remember you know once the, the crowds had gone we we're in the dressing room for for hours um and you know obviously drinking and and as you do celebrating and just more relief i just you know kind of that expectation sorry on the team um it was just a brilliant feeling um and knowing that there were still two games left was was a bit weird um yeah because it didn't end well did it the last no, game no. no but that was his job done isn't it by then yeah that's right and i, I think it the, there was always going to be a knock-on effect because i think once we'd won it you know we kind of switched off which you didn't know at the time but you did i think we lost the last two games um so yeah it was just a, a an incredible week at scarborough um and i think the sunday league game was probably the most incredible um you know, everyone was were partying on Saturday. We played on Sunday. I think Darren Lehman had champagne out of his helmet before he went out to bat and went out and got 191 or something. It was just an incredible day. And was there anything in that season in red ball cricket in particular that that changed in terms of your squad mentality and approach to it, or did did he, did you just you know play to the, hit your straps if you like in the majority of games? Yeah, I think we had. Um, the perfect storm players playing really well um, all together I think what changed after that is that people's expectation but aspiration I think Matthew Wood Richard Dawson Steve Kirby went on an eight on all of a sudden people are looking at international honours and you kind of you know we kind of had all that togetherness going for this first title and I think probably took his eye off the ball a little bit you know after that but that that particular summer um, you know everyone would just uh, you know, like a machine, really. Someone would put a, put their hand up and perform in each game. So you say you lost the last two matches. Then you only won two matches in two thousand and two and got relegated. How how could that be? It's incredible. It was one of them where at the time you're thinking we won't go down. There's no chance. Um, Is that a bit of complacency because you were champions? Yeah, maybe? maybe. Yeah, I mean, looking back, <coughs> it's difficult to to win a trophy but I think it's even harder to, to back it up and be successful the next year I think we won the one day title that season at Lords, but it was just so disappointing I mean to go down were embarrassing really with the team we had um, and I think you know it wasn't any lack of effort I think as you said probably just subconsciously maybe we thought oh we'll start winning we'll start winning we probably just didn't put in enough you know obviously good performances to, to really you know challenge because we all thought you know we'd we'd go on and and really be close again but we we just did we were awful that year we'll we'll talk about the good bit then the, the final against somerset at lords you had a bit a bizarre semi-final didn't you which lasted about four days and it rained and rained and you were thinking about bowl offs and that sort of thing but managed to see off um was that surrey i think in the semi-final yeah, yeah. And then uh, Somerset in the final, um, Matthew Elliott, I don't think he'd played another game in the tournament that year, did he? Just got his... He came in for Darren Lehman, yeah. In the Darren, final. Yeah, that's right. And then you, you didn't you stay the ship home? Got the, did you yeah, me, runs? yeah, me yeah. and Matthew, uh, Matty Elliott, I think, put about 100 on. But it was a great day. I mean, first, uh, it's actually, we'd, we'd lost to uh, Gloucester a couple of years early and we got absolutely battered. But th that day, you know, stereotypical... English summer, a beautiful day at Lords. Uh, it was a really good game. Somerset put 260 on the board, and in them days was a, a good score. Um, 
And I remember we, we lost a couple of wickets and Matt Elliott's innings that day, 100 and how many not out, was just incredible. Um, 128 of 125 balls, which was ridiculous in those days, yeah. wasn't it? It's just routine now, isn't it, for a player who yeah. gets, and gets a ton? I think we were still in whites and it was a red ball game. Yeah. So, you know, they had a good attack, Andy Caddick, uh, Richard Johnson, I think. Um, but that innings, and as I say, with, we put about 100 on, I think, or near that. But to watch Matt Elliott that day just... He was absolutely superb, and again to win the trophy, you know, uh, all family and friends down there, it was absolutely superb. You know, one of definitely most enjoyable days in cricket. Brilliant. So let's fast forward to two thousand and six because you spend Division Two, like you're in Division Two for for oh three, oh four, and oh five. Two thousand and six, great year for you personally. Averaged sixty, uh, twelve hundred ninety three first class runs. A one-day best score of 148 that season as well. But then relations with the county itself are going a little bit sour. Was that your own personal feelings towards what was going on there? What, what, how did it manifest itself? What happened? Yeah, it was, it was tough because I think um, you know, we were disappointed to be down in Division 2 for, for a number of years. and um, I personally just felt we were taking his eye off the ball on, 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 on cricket, really. I thought the club were going in in a certain direction with recruitment, and I think I'd got to the stage where I was a senior player, you know, I'd been captain before that, and you know, I, I just voiced my opinion that I thought things needed to change, we needed to be better. Um, quite a few players left, you know, Darren Lehman weren't going to come back, we were letting players leave to other clubs. Um, so yeah, I just thought something had to change really, and you know you don't really want it to play out in public, but it got to a stage where there were the changes at the club behind the scenes, and unfortunately it was a little bit of a standoff really, and you know I were close to to leaving at that point. Did um did, we, had you spoken to other counties? I mean, was that a real realistic thing that you had offers on the table to yeah, go elsewhere? Yeah, yeah, I had spoken to a few counties. I mean, I, you look, you don't ideally want to leave, but I think at, at the time. You know, I, I just didn't think there were another way forward, really. Um, and then, uh, it was probably a couple of months after, uh, Martin Moxon came back in, Darren Goff came back. I spoke to both of them and they said, look, things are going to change. We'd had Chris Adams who came and left within a day because I don't think he liked what he saw. Um, but once Martin and Goffy came back, um, they kind of spelled out what we thought we needed to do, get back to you know, more Yorkshire homegrown players bringing the right recruitment. Um, Jack Rudolph, Eunice Khan, Jason Gillespie followed pretty quickly. So pretty much, not overnight, but changed really quickly. And once I knew that was happening um, and what was going, there was no way, you know, I wanted to leave. You touched on the fact that you were captain for a season early on and then, of course, came back and did it again later on. Why just the one season in the first place? I was in the England team then so I just didn't think it were fair on the team I remember going in to see uh, David Bias and say look you know I, I played test matches that summer in 2003 I played one day as I was still I was in the one day team with England still going on tour that winter um, still trying to get back in the test team and I just thought it was a job where someone needed to be there all the time so it was a decision where I'd kind of gone in and say look I'd I've really loved doing it, but I don't think I'm doing the job justice. And you did come back in 2009 and, and do it again. Was that a different feeling the first time around? Uh, players presumably had, had come and gone by then, different different team to captain? Yeah, it was. And I was older then. Um, uh, 2009, you know, I'm uh, 34, I think it was. So, um yeah, I mean, I'd, you're older, you're more experienced. Um, very different team, uh, but a very good team still. Um, but I think that summer in particular, I started really well with the bat, but then fell away, and I just thought my form was was really struggling with the captaincy. So again, even though I'd, I'd captained as vice captain over the years, but that was kind of the official club captain, but. Um, I remember certainly towards the end of the season really struggling with the form and again sitting down with Martin I just you know thought to get my batting back to be a you know I could still be a leader without being captain but I really needed to try and rescue that, that batting form. You say that and then 
in the same season as your batting form was struggling, you came up with the first double century yeah. in first-class cricket down at Edgbaston. Yeah, that was early on. I mean, as I say, I think I started the, the season really, really well. Um, I remember that game, I think, got 50-odd in the second innings as well. So, um, yeah, started well, but didn't finish too well with a bat. And vindication, I suppose, that the first year you've given it up again, 2010, you come up with another 1,219 that season. Yeah, um, so I think that was... The good thing from that was the right decision. Um, I think Andrew Gale, that was his first year, he, t- he took over. So, um, you know, as a senior player in the side, I knew I needed to score runs. So um, that was a you know a good year for me, 2010. And we've obviously you touched on the fact um, that there are England honours for you in and among all that. Um, can you remember when the call came? What was said? Was it a letter? Was it one of these where you had to look on CFAX? <laughs> it was um, It was a call, uh, and I thought it was a prank call, to be honest. I think we was at Northampton in 2003, and uh, we were rained off, and um, yeah, it was a call on the mobile, and I thought it was one of the lads messing about, so luckily I didn't say anything too bad. It was David Graveney <laughs> <laughs> who said, we need you at Lords next uh, Monday. Um, and it wasn't until he followed up with a, a text after, and that, you know, obviously it came up a withheld number, so you're always a little bit, you know, thinking someone's messing about. But uh, yeah, as I say, fortunately, I didn't say anything bad to him. And we'd finished at Northampton. I literally went home and uh, one night, and then down at Lords uh, on the Monday to prepare for the the game against Zimbabwe. Were you kind of? Did you have an inkling that that might come? I think Andrew Flintoff was obviously the sort of stellar England all-rounder at the time and got had got injured. Did you think you might be the next man in? Um, I'd, I'd started that season well with a bat. I mean, I never really considered myself an all-rounder. I mean, there was a little bit talk in the media. So I was someone who fiddled a few overs, so I didn't think I was going to be a direct replacement for him. Um, so I know there'd been a little bit of talk, uh, but when I got the call, you know, it was a, a really nice surprise. I think I, I think I batted at seven. Um, so it's kind of that's kind of how I got I guess the all rounder tag. I got a few wickets, but um, I knew I had I was in conversation for selection around that time. So it was finally nice to get a call. How did you find the England dressing room? Um, again, people were pretty welcoming. I knew NASA, who was captain at the time from my England day days. Obviously, Vaughan was there. Uh, uh, Matthew Ogard. Uh, I knew Steve Harmison. Uh, and Trez as well from under 19 days so I knew quite a lot of the guys um, Mark Butcher I'd toured with so it was pretty easy really in that way I knew a lot of the guys who, who were playing um, and again you know really good dressing room to go in Duncan Fletcher with a coach he didn't really say too much he was quite reserved but um, again you know really enjoyed it and you played the, the four test matches a couple against Zimbabwe a couple against South Africa, South Africa yeah Got a couple of 50s as well, first couple of innings, mm. but presumably would have wanted it to have lasted a lot longer than it did. Yeah, I was dis- disappointed actually. I mean, um, I'd only, I think, batted five times in the four tests, only once both against Zimbabwe, once in the first test against South Africa, and twice at Lords, and then got left out. And I, I thought I'd started pretty well. I think I were averaging about 40 in the four tests um, and felt disappointed to get left out. And then I think the next couple of years scored heavily for Yorkshire and, and never really got back in. So it was uh, it was disappointing, really. Was it mid-series that you got left out? Yes. Mid, Mid-South Africa series? Yeah. yeah. So, so an obvious disappointment because you'll often get to the end of a series and then you just don't get on the tour for whatever reason. Yeah. That's probably something different again did you ever get the inkling that you might be going on a, a full first team international yeah, tour I thought I had a chance because um, I, I actually was still in the one day side and and I actually thought I played better in the test matches than I had in the one day uh, so I, you know I was around the one day squad for the next year and a bit but not really in the test match so even though I was touring I was only touring you know for part part time in Sri Lanka and in West Indies so it was disappointing not to be, you know, given another chance in in the Test arena. But um, as you know, with them sorts of things, it's it's someone else's opinion and, and whoever's selecting the teams. So yeah, great opportunity to go in and play four Tests. I'm sure they're experiences that you're never going to forget. But also, just thinking about it logically, uh, winding the clock back 15 years and more now, 
England were on the up at that time, weren't they? So you would have had to come into that side and perform well. I mean, they were not far away from, for example, winning that 2005 yeah. Ashes series. So everything's going well. And I suppose it's just one of those moments in, in England cricket history where you'd had to come in and probably get a ton to have any chance of returning your place. Yeah, exactly. I think, um, you know, 2003-04, I thought there was a chance I could have played more. But once that 2005 series started, England played really well, I think, in the winter in West Indies. So it was really tough to get back in the team. Uh, and even though we're scoring well at Yorkshire, um, England were performing really well as well. So as you say, you had to do something really special to get in the team then and stay in it. Did you need, Were you a sort of player who needed that as motivation? Because when, it's, when you've not played the next level up and it's always still there as a possible goal, but when you have done it and then it looks like you might not do it again, is that a struggle then? To, you know, you've still got a few years of your career left. What gets you out of bed on the morning? No, really. I mean, you wanted to get back in, so that was the motivation because you you kind of tasted it. You knew that, uh, you know, how much fun it was. Um, I'd got a couple of half centuries and I thought I could do better. So there was always that motivation there. I, I think once you got up towards 34, 35, even though it's not that, that old, you, you're thinking probably your time's gone. But I think at that time, um, you know, I was kind of a senior player at Yorkshire and, we were getting young players coming through and, and kind of that was my motivation then bringing, you know, trying to help bring these young lads through. And then uh, you, you struggle a bit with knee injuries, a bit of sciatica in the last couple of seasons of your career, so a bit of a disappointment really that the injuries end up sort of beating you rather than the pace bowler or the spin bowler at the other end. Yeah, it was probably the hardest time of my career actually, the sciatica. Just couldn't get rid of it. We tried everything from injections to well, literally everything and... Um, I really shouldn't have probably played in that 2-11 season, played through a lot of pain, uh, but ultimately, yeah, it just really something that that beat me. One highlight then, what was your what was your one career highlight, the, the moment that you'd put above all others, whatever it might be? Uh, I think the championship win in 2001, just the, the um, I mean, it wasn't a particularly memorable season for me personally, but as we've talked about, 68, we hadn't won it. Uh, everything around that and that feeling at Scarborough I think was definitely a career highlight I've got the ESPN Crick Info I'll give them the uh, the nod um, on that one um, profile of Anthony McGrath in front of me my glasses have uh, dis- <laughs> decided to use this moment to break today um, but it says a neat upright batsman with a penchant for the drive is that a fair description of your um, mm. your technique uh, don't know not really, I would have said. OK, uh, let's try this one. Um, his somewhat ponderous fielding didn't help his cause as uh, an England cricketer. All right. Don't know who's written that. No, um, uh, there's nobody put the name to all it. Right, okay. They never do, do they? Well, because I know you'd be around there. Maybe they saw me a knock in my uh, latter years, maybe, but... Um, yeah. Hmm. Um, well, maybe, um, maybe we'll just pass over that one, then. <laughs> um, but... Um, what about those characters? You mentioned the likes of uh, Ryan Sidebottom, Darren Goff. What are they like around the dressing room when things are maybe not going so well? Because that's when you need these people to, to give you a boost. Yeah, Goffy, I mean, was always a life and soul. He's, he's like he is now. You hear him on Talk Sport and all the, the programmes he's been on. Um, just someone who's really good fun. I mean, first and foremost, what a bowler, especially when he was at his peak. First really English bowler who got reverse swing could win a match on his own but I think he you know was someone that all the young lads looked up to he was the first really one to get into the England team um, and after that everyone kind of followed a lot of internationals in that Yorkshire dressing room at that time but Goffu was really the flag bearer for that someone who really helped the young guys as I say always good fun um, and someone who you know everyone looked to in the country you know and to have someone from Yorkshire who was like that it was great to be around and um, you know he was always someone who who was uh, looking out for the young lads as well as I said. And somebody else who played test cricket and we talk about that Jimmy Anderson what he's achieved in the game and you know when you watch cricket on television and you hear the commentators talking about the skills and the shapes and what he does with the ball a bit of a magician at county level and he did play test cricket Ryan Sidebottom particularly as the longer his career went on he seemed to be that sort of a a bowler himself. Yeah, Ryan was a, a fabulous bowler. Someone who, when he started, was young, uh, younger, was probably, 
you know, quicker and didn't swing it as much. But as he went through his career, he was so skillful, as you say, swinging the ball, never missed his length. Um, you know, probably should have played more for England, but when he left to Knotts and then came back, there were a period, you know, for a few years where he was probably the best bowler in the country. How would you describe yourself then as a player if um, a neat upright batsman <laughs> with a penchant for the drive is, is not necessarily accurate? Um, I probably changed over the years, as I said, with it probably early on more attacking and, and my most consistent years, probably the last eight, nine, ten years of my career, um, probably an accumulator of runs rather than someone who was flair. Um, you know, I probably put a few shots in the bag, so um, probably just more learn through experience. You know, what shots to play, what what not to, and and just try and, as I say, accumulate them runs. And if you could go back and play all over again, but you could just change one thing about your career, what would that be? I think the the bit we talked about probably from about ninety seven till ninety nine two thousand, then two three years where I struggled. I think. If I had my time again, I'd have been, um, you know, probably kept out the noise a bit more and just really focused on what I could do rather than worrying about, you know, what other people were saying. You're listening to uh, Sporting Lives with Anthony McGrath, head coach of Essex, formerly of England and uh, Yorkshire, with myself, Jonathan Deutsch. Um, so, coaching. Um, tell us about it because uh, it's been a pretty damn good start since um, you went down to Essex. You won the title in that first season when you were assistant to Chris Silverwood, now head coach of England. Um, and then after uh, another decent season, keeping tabs on the leaders but not winning it, you've come back in 2019 and not only won the championship but also a first ever T20 title for Essex. Feels like it's just been a piece of cake, has it? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, I mean, the four years I've had at Essex have been superb, really. Uh, as you said, first we working under Chris for two years and then being head coach myself the last two years. Um, you know, we've been fortunate with the group of players we've had. I think it's been a bit of a perfect storm with, with the makeup of the team. You mentioned Alistair Cook, someone like Simon Harmer. You're never really sure with recruitment what kind of impact players will have, but we've got a very good squad, but we've got certain individuals who've just been absolutely on a different level. So, um, it's had its challenges. We've not been great in, in some points of white ball. We've had a, a struggles, as every team do. But I think the, the shining probably factor on the team is, is the togetherness, the unity, and the characters we've got, really. Uh, you mentioned Simon Harmo, 83 championship wickets in 2019. 20, um, Ridiculous, really. 18.28. And it, talk about match winning. Five... Um, five wicket innings, two ten wicket matches, um, drops it on the proverbial sixpence, as my dad would have said. Um, and just you've got somebody there when you, well, you need to take twenty wickets to win these matches, who you can set your clock by. And then I know you're going to tell me it's not just about the one man within in that bowling attack. No, I mean I think the way we go about our cricket, we only have three seamers and, and Simon. The reason for that is because he can bowl from one end in any conditions, whether it's spinning or not. He's a, he is a big spinner of the ball, but he's one of the best spinners, I would say, who bowls uh, in the first innings because he doesn't need it to spin. As you say, normally goes at two, two and a bit and over, and if you've got that bowling from one end, you can then really, you know, if he's doing a holding role, we can attack from the other end and you know, we've been blessed with some good seamers as well. We've obviously Peter Siddle, we've had Mohammed Amir, but the, the young guys like Sam Cook, Jamie Porter, Aaron Beard, Matt Quinn, we've we've had, um, you know, some really good seamers as well. So it's a, a really good balanced attack. Um, and then we mentioned him earlier on, uh, Sir Alistair Cook. What's it like when you are coaching somebody? Let's, let's put it in context here. If I walked into a, a, a cricket net now, uh, even though... Yeah, I did say that many years ago when you were just out of short pants, you batted all the way through a game that I bowled at you in. But if I walked into a coaching clinic now and said, oh, no, you need to be doing this with your technique, you need to be doing that, and I've got zero first-class runs and you've got the massive amount you've got, okay. what's it like coaching somebody when you've played four test matches and yeah. scored uh, a couple of hundred runs, whatever it was, and he's played a hundred and plenty and scored over 11,000 test, test match runs? How, how do you approach dealing with somebody like that well he coaches you <laughs> no but I mean he's that kind of character where 
look, he doesn't need a rocket science. He knows what he's doing, obviously. He's scored the most runs ever for, for England. So with someone like Alistair, it's just he has certain checkpoints and he might ask you to look at something. But he knows what he's doing, so you don't really need to get in, involved with that. It might be just a little bit of video work or, or, or something he's working towards. And it's just about keeping someone like that happy, really. So if he goes for, through the first half of next season and, and doesn't get out of the 20s, do you drop him? No, no I, I, it wouldn't happen, I don't think. I mean, I, look, he's had, he's had periods in test cricket where he's, he's, got, uh, you know, he's gone through trots. Chelmsford's not the easiest place to bat, even though he averaged, I think, nearly 50 there, 60 this year. But um, you know with someone like that, because of the experience, because of the class, at some point he will start scoring runs. For me, with, with someone like Alistair, with all the experience he's got, if he's enjoying his cricket, he's going to score runs. I think that when the time comes where he's had enough, that's where his form might dip. But he's still young enough to, hopefully, for Essex, play for another couple of years. Do you have any preference in terms of um, you know, age levels, if you like, as to who you work with? Do you prefer to work with more experienced players or is it the young, the, the, the potential future stars that sort of excite you most as a coach to work with? Um, everyone, really. I mean, I think, you know, people are at different stages of the career. We're lucky to have some good coaches at Essex as well. So we try and mix it up and work with everyone as much as we can. I think it's more the the player as well, who they're happy working with, who they've got a good relationship with. Um, so as head coach, it's just really, as I said, them relationships and knowing when to kind of step in and when to leave people to, to get on with it themselves. And sometimes counties with great histories, and you played at one no greater history than that, than that at Yorkshire, can be stymied, if you like, by their past stars. Uh, sometimes that can be like you know, a millstone around their necks. Uh, where somebody who's been great in the past is showing the face constantly and you, you feel like you're constantly being reminded that you, you've got something to live up to. Do, for example, Nasser Hussain and particularly Graham Gooch show their face around at Chelmsford a lot and, and how's that relationship with with current players and people like yourself? Yeah, N Nasser doesn't as uh, really, but Graham Gooch is on our cricket committee, as is Keith Fletcher, as is Ronnie Arani. And they're very supportive, really. I think the lads like to have them about. They don't get involved too much, but they're always there for a chat if they do. Someone like Graham and Keith, you know, have captained uh, the countries and also Essex. So they're someone who are, are very supportive. Ronnie Iran is cricket chairman. Um, and I think they're just passionate about the game. I don't think they're, they're at all anyone I've heard say they're a hindrance to the club or, or remind them I think they're very much in the in the present and they just want the guys to do well It's a tough all season 2019 wasn't it as well I know Yorkshire were on the coattails of both yourselves and Somerset in particular leading for, for quite a long time um, so to, to get that one across the line I remember that particularly tense game that was on the television between um, yourselves uh, and um, and Somerset. What was talk us through those last few weeks, days? It was tough. I mean, I was absolutely knackered at the end of it. Um, we had, mentally, mentally, yeah, yeah. shot really. Um, I think everyone expected us uh, to go on and probably challenge Somerset, but no one really expected us to win the T Twenty. So the last week of the season, we knew we had finals day, and then we had to get on the coach to Taunton. Um, you know, the week before we'd drawn at Warwickshire and then uh, Hampshire did us a favour beating Somerset. So it was a quite tense. Um, we get to finals day and, and we played probably as well as we have done for the last few years in T20. Um, and I remember getting on the coach to, to Somerset. Everyone obviously delighted that we've won the T20, but it was that fear then of if we didn't go on and win the championship, it'd kind of be... Would it be disappointing? You know, that kind of feeling. And when we got to Taunton and we saw the pitch, we knew if we didn't win the toss, we were in trouble. Um, so, yeah, it was, you know, them four days, even though there was a lot of rain, it, it seemed like four months. And um, on that last afternoon when we did actually get out there, we lost, I think, eight or nine wickets after tea. And you're thinking, oh, no, this, you know, this could be a nightmare but fortunately we managed to to get through and um again just relief you know the the, the picking up the trophy at, at Taunton um I think everyone felt it everyone were just you know a huge sigh of relief and um uh, everyone were looking forward to some rest uh, were were the players were you all uh, as a staff as well able to properly celebrate that because 
would have been hard for you to properly celebrate the T20 win just a few days earlier. And that was a, I mean, that was a yeah. super tense game, wasn't it? Yeah, With Simon Harmon hitting the winning runs off the last ball. Yeah, I mean, you know, mentally, that's what I think the coaches, we, we were worried about, the, the elation, you know, coming into T20, going down to the last ball. You know, you don't finish till 10 at night. You know, the family and friends were there. As you say, we couldn't really celebrate too much. You're just wondering, is that going to have a knock-on effect going into the Somerset game? So it probably helped we had a bit of rain down there. Um, but we were straight on the bus back to Chelmsford after the Taunton game. We had our gala dinner the next night. So we could kind of celebrate then, but then everyone disappears. So, um, you know, although we celebrated as a team, I think everyone did it really individually after, after that gala dinner because everyone were looking forward to a break. Well, listen, um, many congratulations on, on that fantastically Thank successful you. start to, to your coaching career and uh, the double this season. Um, the man who preceded you, Chris Silverwood, in the chair for England, how do you think that's going to go? I think he'll do really well. Yeah, I think it'll take a bit of time. Obviously, they're putting a lot of emphasis on the, the red ball. Um, I think they're trying to find the, the right balance uh, in the team, with not just the batting, but the bowling as well. Um, so... Are you totally your own man as a coach? Are there things that you've drawn on from others that you've worked with in the past? Well, maybe not necessarily always coaches, but coaches, captains, senior players? Yeah, without doubt, you always pick up stuff along. I think you've got to do. You, you want to be your own person and you have your own kind of vision. And uh, But, you know, being in the sport for, for how many years I have, you always pick up um, tips. You know, Darren Lehman's a big one for me. He was superb as a captain and as a player. Uh, Wayne Clark, who was successful at Yorkshire, a really good man manager, um, how he managed individuals. So I picked up a lot from him. And then, yeah, loads of players over, over the years, really. It's just tapping into that little bit and putting your own style on it. Just before we wind up, I'm going to drop into cliche territory. I know that's absolutely not what you'd expect from a, a sports broadcaster at all, but what is. Uh, people like to know these things, don't they? What's the best piece of advice that you received? from anybody in your playing or coaching career? Um, Was it shut the door on your way out? Or? <laughs> yeah. No, I think the worst piece of advice is actually the best, if that, if I'm, if that makes sense. Someone told me when I went into coaching, you'd have to change. You couldn't be like you are as a player. Your personality, you don't get too close to players and so on. And actually, that's exactly what I haven't done. I've just tried to be myself, and I think that's helped. I think if you... If you're someone trying to be someone you're not, people can see through that. Um, players can see through that in a dressing room and you lose the players very quickly. So I've really tried to be my personality, my character, uh, and I think that's kind of helped um, in my coaching. Um, just to wind up on that uh, best piece of advice you received, what about if you were filtering advice onto a young player now? did a dinner recently with the Yorkshire Junior Age Group, so you can sit yourself in that position mm. going back a few years now. Um, these days, things have changed since you were in junior cricket and you've got a white ball and you've got a red ball. Um, you can play the long game if you want to go through all the, the mental anguish and the dips in and out of form, or you can go for the shortest form of the lot and make yourself a huge sum of money yeah. if you're any good at it. What would you be advising a young player to practice most now in terms of skills? Would it be the ramp or the forward defence? It's very tough and you raise a, a good point because that's where cricket is now. And um, I spoke a lot about this with Alistair Cook because he, he wouldn't swap any of it for his, you know, batting for a full day, um, you know, facing 20 balls and getting 50 and be a hero. But I think as a young player, you've got to practice everything um, because... You know, as you say, it's a short career, and if you get a chance to go like the IPL auction today for one point one million for five weeks, you're not going to turn it down. So um, it is a challenge. But my personal uh, opinion to every young player is to practice both. Uh, you know, both skill sets. I think there's enough coaches now with enough facilities in this country, with indoor school and Loughborough and people like that, where you can split your time up. So I think if you're smart with it, you can. You can be a really good red ball player and a really good white ball player. And I think Virat Kohli is, you know, obviously the best at the moment. But people like Cam Williamson, Joe Root, David Warner, Steve Smith, you can do it. And also, you know, uh, bowlers as well. So I'd be practising both as much as I could.
That's for the future of young players. What about the future of Anthony McGrath? Where are we in five years' time if we come back and re-record this podcast, or maybe ten? I don't know. I mean, What's the pe- ambition for pe- you? People ask that all the time. I, I've always been someone who, whatever job I'm in, try and do that to the best of your ability. Don't worry about too much the future. Um, and I think if you do that, you take your eye off the ball. Some people say you've got to have a, a plan and where you want to be in a few years. But I, I've always believed, certainly in more in recent times, is just do the job you're in to the best of your ability. And if you do that well, then other things will come along. Sounds like very sound advice. Anthony McGrath, it's been a great pleasure spending an hour of your time talking about your career and thoughts on the world of cricket. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Yeah, great to hear the story of Anthony McGrath. Now, plenty more to come on Sporting Lives throughout the coming weeks and months, so do stick with us. Please do hit subscribe if you're listening on Podbean or on iTunes to get the latest episode as soon as it comes out. Lots more sportsmen and sportswomen sharing their live stories on Sporting Lives. Don't forget you can follow me on Twitter on at Jonathan Doidge. Or you can email me, jonathandoidge at hotmail.com if you want to make suggestions for future guests that you'd like to hear as part of the podcast. Thanks for listening.